everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me for a review of the weekend and all the handballs that happened, it's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. I was buoyed by your infectious joy as your intro there, then slightly dampened by the mention of many handballs, <laughs> which we will undoubtedly talk about. I will apologize off the top of the show to listeners. Uh, I, I'm a little bit under the weather, so if I'm even more unlistenable than usual, that is why. I mean... I'm 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 excited to see how you become even more unlistenable, Ryan. But I feel oh. like you'll pull pull through. Shots fired <laughs> off the top. I like it. I think anything that delays us from having to talk about VAR and handballs and stuff like that, I'll take. <laughs> so even if it's trash talking, which is not my favorite thing, I'll go with it. Uh, and I guess like we both are kind of referencing it up front. There was much consternation, much debate, much confusion about handballs, about VAR this weekend. We are mm. going to talk about that a little bit slash a lot bit throughout the show. We're going to try to avoid the the hand wringing, the this is an abomination, this is ruining the game, and that sort of talk. But try to look at it as why were these given? Why aren't certain things being given? Uh, and then maybe how do we feel about it a little bit? But we're going to try to stay away from some of the histrionics because I do think if you start going down that road, uh, it can be a little bit time consuming and a little bit frustrating. That said, Ryan, did you want to rant for like 10 minutes straight? Taylor, I want to wring my hands. <laughs> Come on. Just wash your hands instead. That's the rule of the day. <laughs> um, then let's start uh, from this past weekend. We're going to start in the Premier League as we are wont to do. And we're going to go to Manchester City 2, Leicester City 5. A result that I certainly did not see coming. Ryan, did you have any inclination? Because I had read the articles about the 4-2-3-1 working. Pep had brought in this new thing that he didn't really, really like, but it was working for Man City and they could keep it going. And this weekend, I feel like we saw a good example of how maybe teams can quickly adjust to that. And then the 4-2-3-1 does not work so well for Pep Guardiola. With the gift of hindsight, I can inform you, I 100% saw this coming. Uh, yeah, qu- quite quite the result here. I mean, Leicester, we know, are a pretty decent team, and they certainly gave Man City uh, a good thing to in this one. Uh, the 4-2-3-1 the is quite critical here, because this is something I've hammered home again and again when talking about Pep Guardiola's Manchester City on this show. Whenever he sort of diverts away from the 4-3-3, mm-hmm. trouble is a brewing. When you look at the times they've lost, it tends to be when they haven't kept their 4-3-3 shape or when Fernandinho has been moved out of that defensive midfield uh, in the middle of the middle three. So here we had Rodrigo and Fernandinho pairing up and we had Mauro's uh, De Bruyne, uh, Foden and Sterling or Foden later on um, uh, as, as the, in front of the defense. Mm-hmm. This did not work out so well for them, Taylor. It did, it not. did not. It did not. It did not at all. I mean, the, the five goals w- would serve as evidence of that. Uh, the piece I was referencing, which Daryl pointed my way, was by John Muller. It was called The Unhappy Triumph of the Double Pivot. Right. And it essentially talks about how the 4-2-3-1 has gained prominence. Pep Guardiola has always stuck with the the sole pivot player. He tried it uh, in the opening game, and it worked out well. This time it did not, and I think it's because Leicester sort of the obvious problems you have with a 4-2-3-1 is you don't really have the triangles. You have more square. It's a lot more lateral passing, and mm. it requires individual performers to alleviate the pressure and find their way out. Rodri certainly wasn't doing that. Fernandinho was not doing that either, and then Fernandinho is substituted. Uh, and I think you can see, again, the vulnerability of that system. Certainly have the faith that Pep will be able to kind of figure it out and keep tweaking, but I think it's a credit to Leicester, really, and that's where I would like to go with it for a moment, is that Brendan Rodgers continues to just be a very good coach and i also think i i want to apologize to lester fans a little bit for the second year running ryan it's our new tradition 
<laughs> I think what's impressive about Brendan Rodgers is, is that he's very adaptable yeah. and he's been he's adapted his team particularly to this Manchester City team you know they, they've done lots of running they're very disciplined here very tight lines between the defence and the midfield unlike some teams we may talk about later on yeah. uh, in this weekend review lots of very quick passing which is something you obviously have to do to, to, to try and keep the ball uh, away from Manchester City definitely exploiting that leaky back line and they were countering quite a lot as well and what was quite clear I think Brendan Rodgers even said this afterwards they wanted to be more direct and they were it was less um, you know build out from the goalkeeper a bit more direct a little bit more even route one kind of a little bit like we saw with Hoffenheim uh, over Bayern Munich Mm -hmm. later this weekend but with kind of less urgency to get in behind the back line. So a little bit less running than Hoffenheim did, I would say, arguably. But they seem to sort of crack the formula here. Mm-hmm. And as, as much credit as Leicester deserve for that, I think, once again, it comes back to Pep Guardiola messing with his 4-3-3. He knows he can do a 4-3-3. Uh, did, he, did he do this 4-2-3-1 when they went out of the Champions League? I'm pretty sure they, they did, or they didn't. At least they didn't have the uh, 4-3-3 going on. And I know you can give Manchester City excuses here. They didn't have Aguero. They, they didn't have Jesus up front. They got Raheem Sterling kind of acting as a... A real nine? A false nine? I don't know what kind of nine he was. <laughs> uh, we've got lots of players uh, out of position. <laughs> yeah, we've got, well, Kevin De Bruyne is arguably out of position playing in the sort of hole behind Raheem mm-hmm. Sterling. Fernandinho is arguably out of position playing in the double pivot there, not in, not in, uh, in the middle as, as he would, used to be playing. And then that back line with Nate Narke, a relegated last year centre back with Eric Garcia, a pretty inexperienced centre back who was shown to have a little bit of an experience in this game. And then, you know, Mendy, with, who has plenty of faults as well, uh, on the left of them. I, I, you, you tried to make this about Leicester, and I've turned it back to Manchester City, so I apologise for that. So if it's you want right. to go on Leicester, please do. You've, well, you've given me a nice transition with there was one good Mendy on the field and one less good Mendy on the field. Mm. Because, yeah, Benjamin Mendy, I, I didn't think, had a very strong game. I didn't really think any of the City backline did. No. And I do think some of that is the kind of static passing. I do think a lot of that is what Leicester brought to the equation which I think uh, you're right, there was a willingness to be a little bit direct and cause that pressure. But I also mm. think we saw a lot of cleverness, especially from Tielemann and uh, Mendy. Uh, Mendy, is like, like I think for the first goal, evades a lot of pressure and basically takes out an entire wave of Man City players with one quick touch. And that's what you have to do, because if you get around that pressure... Then suddenly you've evaded it, you've p- taken people out, and now you've got tons of space to operate within. And I thought Nampalis Mendy was really, really impressive in this game. So too, this is where I feel like I owe Lester an apology, was uh, Timothy Castagni, uh, the new signing from Atalanta, who when he came in, I think this is me being a little bit lazy. I'm just going to own that one here. And though I watched a ton of Atalanta in the Champions League, less so in Serie A, a little bit in Serie A, but less so. I, I still bought into the idea that like Castagni is a more defensive wingback. And that seemed to be the prevailing narrative of he's more defensive. Uh, Justin, who's going to fill in for Ben Chilwell now that he's departed, those two are going to be a little bit more stay at home. They're going to be a little bit more conservative. And now I'm realizing I think a lot of that was maybe just that Castagni was coming from Serie A and that he was coming from an Italian team in Atalanta, yeah. who maybe if you don't know much about them, you'll just think like, oh, they must just be a defensive, organized, tactical Italian team. Because he was electrifying in this game. Castagna gets up and down, makes overlapping runs, combines really, really well. You see his technical precision on display, especially for that first goal. The way he's just able to kind of find that little pocket of space and get in there. I just thought he was 
excellent for the uh, the excuse me the second goal the the second goal for Jamie Vardy the first one is obviously a penalty but the second one where he scores with that reverse instep yeah. I just thought some great overloads in certain positions to cause Man City problems some great runs and movement by Leicester to pull Man City out and make them uncomfortable and then some great finishing from Jamie Vardy two penalties uh, three penalties on the day for Leicester City Jamie Vardy took two of the three and then he scores some open play so a hat trick for Jamie Vardy inside of an hour that's not too bad either. That's not too bad at all. The line I will steal from Twitter is that Manchester City's best defenders are their lawyers. Um, I thank you very much to the person who wrote that. Um, but you're right, there was lots of overloads at Leicester Course. I think particularly in that right channel with Castagna, who was excellent. I don't even think he was a number one guaranteed on the team every week player at Atalanta, which kind of speaks as, a lot to their quality as well. But you, in that second goal, you mentioned he had that little link up with Tielemans uh, in the build-up. That was wonderful to see as well. But on that right side, it did seem like a lot of the time there was a lot of space between Nathan Okay and Ben Mendy. Mm -hmm. And I think that was particularly clear in the fifth goal when uh, James Madison was brought down. He had a lot of space to operate there and uh, and, and Mendy just allowed him to get goal side uh, and sort of no choices than to foul him at that point. So yeah. very disappointing defending, but also all the way through this Manchester City team, I'd say that it wasn't by any means just the fault of the defence. And as, as I mentioned, I know it's because they had some absences in this mm-hmm. team, but still... I mean, there were problems of players at the top not putting enough pressure on the ball. They were they were letting they were getting you know the ball played around them a bit too easily. Uh, I think you know not as much running from City in their front line as I'd like to have seen as well to to sort yeah. of put up their side of the bargain. I think like I don't mean this to sound as like hacky comedy eighties joke as it's going to be, but like I've heard of a sophomore season. I had not heard of like a second game slump sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, And 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 I do think looking around the leagues and a lot of the games we're going to talk about, I think the teams that had longer seasons or were playing in Europe because of the way the schedule ended up working out and haven't had as much preseason. I think maybe we saw some of them, like some of those chickens come home to roost this weekend with Man City, certainly with Bayern and with Dortmund as well. Just not the kind of strong performances you would have expected. I don't really think that this is a necessarily damning result for Manchester City. It's certainly not the way they wanted to uh, have things go. I mean, they are now 13th. I'm sure they're really upset about that. Of course, mostly having played a game fewer. I don't think we need to worry so much. But I do think, to your point, that some of the isolation and Ake and Eric Garcia kind of routinely having to deal with 3v2s, occasionally even a 4v2. Mm. I cannot imagine that that was how this was drawn up and how Pep Guardiola wanted this to progress. So I'm guessing we will st- see Manchester City continue to stick with that 4-2-3-1 in certain games, in certain situations. But oh I do think they will be able to better and more effectively execute uh, moving forward. So I, I guess I'm inclined to think of this as more of a one-off result that was facilitated by Leicester being an exceptionally good team. Ryan, does that seem like a fair takeaway for you? Or did you see anything else in here that should have Man City fans more worried than I am saying they should be? I think, yeah, I think you're uh, you're exercising a, a, the right amount of caution there. I don't think there's anything like a rot that we're seeing, noticing here. I notice lots of people saying, "Oh, is this is this Pep Guardiola's, Guardiola's time done?" You know that Cruyffian four to five year cycle, or the Mourinho three year cycle. He's surpassing those cycles, and his players are all worn out and don't want to work from anymore. I don't quite buy into that. I still think Manchester City will be very competitive this season. I just think they came up against a team and a manager who particularly figured them out on this day. 
Yeah, I, I think that that is absolutely fair, and I would agree with that entirely. And I think, yeah, if anything, it's it's saying, oh, Man City are in crisis or Pep Guardiola got it wrong. You could say that a little bit, but I think a more fair reading on this is that uh, Brendan Rodgers and Leicester got it entirely right. And we did have a formation change from him. He goes with the back three. They're defending in more of a four, uh, five four one. Jamie Vardy does Jamie Vardy things. To some extent, I think they just game plan for this game very, very effectively. So though I'm sure Pep will be upset and kind of dismissed the result of like, oh, Leicester was just defensive, which I don't really agree with. Uh, I think in the end, it probably won't be so disastrous for Man City, but does move Leicester top of the table, uh, nine points from three games and a plus eight goal difference, the best in the league. Mm. Not really how I saw this one starting. Leicester, Everton, (laughs) Arsenal and Villa as your top four teams right now. Not really the way I thought things were going to go. Well, I think we can say that across Europe, a lot of surprising Mm -hmm. results this weekend, as you say. And I think this season will be very interesting in terms of parity across Europe. There's As much as I just said, there's not many reason for alarm bells for Man City. I will add one extra point, which is, uh, you know, the reason they didn't win last year was because of poor squad planning. And here we are. Uh, second game in the season, Raheem Sterling up top and Rory Delap's son is the next best option to come on a 17 year old. So that doesn't suggest to me a wonderful amount of planning. Maybe they're treading the same ground here. Maybe that's something to look out for. Ryan, I have a, I have a, a f- potentially frightening question for you. In my mind, like, do you know that thing where sometimes you're like, oh yeah, like we were talking like a couple weeks ago. And then you look and you like look at your text message and you realize like, oh, the last time I conversed with this person was like six months ago. Rory DeLapp is not old enough to have a 17 year old kid, is he? Like, did Rory DeLapp have a child when he was two? Or have I just sort of, am I still thinking that Rory DeLapp is relatively young when in reality he hasn't played in like 10 years? I have not run the numbers, but I'm guessing Rory Delap is late 30s and it could mathematically work. Okay. Uh, but right. I do, but to answer your question, yes, I do feel like I'm 100 years old watching Delap's yeah. son come out for Man City's first team. I really like, because like we, we don't have kids yet. Uh, I know you do, but I know that in that moment I would have been like, Hey kids, I remember when his dad used to play and had a long throw in and just, I could oh, already God. picture the eye rolls and it was a little bit disheartening for me because I was ready for Liam Delap to be Rory Delap's like half brother or something to, to find out it was the sun that was uh that was slightly off-putting um, for me I, i've got something more depressing for you Uh-oh. i just googled it rory lap is 44 see that's what i thought i had a feeling that i like remember him playing really really well for stoke a couple seasons ago and in reality that was probably like 2009 wasn't it <laughs> oh boy yeah. oh boy all right let's talk about another premier league game uh let's move swiftly along from rory Delap being older than i thought he was going to be let's briefly talk about spurs and newcastle no drama here an easy one to talk about ryan what would you like to talk about from this one what could we possibly be about to discuss Oh, nothing, nothing much went on in this game, did it? Ah. Certainly not from Newcastle's attacking perspective until New. well after well <laughs> after the 90-minute mark because I think they had... Well, Spurs had 12 shots in this game. And let's take some positives from Tottenham from here because they did look quite positive. Uh, having more shots, I believe, than they've had under Mourinho in the league. I might have to run that stat and double-check that. But basically, they look good going forward. Uh, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg looking like he settled in a bit. He got mm-hmm. quite a lot of criticism when he first came into the team. So I think he's settling in into a double pivot working a little bit better than Manchester City's one, arguably. And uh, Tottenham did have the lead uh, mm-hmm. for a long time in this game. <laughs> That's about as positive as I can get. Oh, Harry Kane got another assist as well, didn't I can, he? I can jump in for a moment just to say that like, I did not watch this game live. And mm-hmm. when I, I then... Daryl was the one to first teach me that you don't have to... like 
keep your powder dry, you can know the result and watch a game. And sometimes it's more enjoyable because you know the results. So you can sort of then see how the game went. And this is one of those strange situations in which you see the result one-to-one with Newcastle. Mourinho's mad and is kind of like throwing out some jabs here and there. And I think I went into this expecting it to be like, oh, here we go. You're going to see the frustrations. You're going to see the team looking disjointed and it's going to be a bad goal they concede. And like, there's the moment when Ben Davies kicks the ball into maybe Hoiberg. I forget who it was, but in that moment, I was like, oh, here we go. This is it. They're going to start like, scoring own goals and fighting. And then by the end of it, I was just like, oh, no, this was just a fine game. It just was a strange finish because of the handball decision. So those first fans, I think, will probably be uh, pretty upset by the way this happened and the fact that they do end up dropping points. I think also the potential injury to Son and that he could be out for a little bit of time probably yeah. also exacerbates the frustration a little bit. But that said, I-, I do think a lot of this has to do with the way the game finishes and the controversial nature of that decision so ryan let's talk handball for the first time in this episode here we go so we get into uh the 93rd or so minute of this game newcastle uh are gifted their first shot on goal via a penalty which comes Mm -hmm. because andy carroll uh, a free kick comes in a free kick which incidentally did you see what earned that free kick uh carroll literally jumps into hoiberg yes (laughs) it's nowhere near being a free kick so they get an undeserved free kick ball comes in andy carroll headers the ball down into eric dyer's arm eric dyer is less than a yard away from him it looks like he may have been pushed as well, and it certainly looks like he's not looking at no, where the he's ball is. He's facing the other way. Yeah. He's facing the other way. His arm, however, is outstretched, so we get the ball goes down the other end, and VAR reviews, and it's a penalty. Mm-hmm. So, no, and obviously, it's quite controversial because of the nature, because of the facts I've just described there, but also the. Ndombele also in late in this game uh, hit a ball into Lascelles' arm, I think it was, uh, which also was an outstretched arm and arguably had more consequence to the flight of the ball because when Carroll's header, it still travels vaguely in its intended direction, whereas the direction completely changes when Lascelles, uh, when it hits him, which is not an argument that is employed in the laws. It's just an observation of mine. But this is, uh, yeah, obviously a, a bit a bit galling to, to give away a, a, mm-hmm. a, um, a two points in this manner. Shall we go into the, the, the rules and why why this was given? Yeah, I want to start maybe a little bit before that just to say that what I have been confused by with this season so far is the apparent change that last year we saw it almost called the opposite way, that if an attacker is judged to have like gained an advantage via touching the ball with their hand, that goal is automatically chalked off. But in the yep. Premier League, at least, it was that if there's a shot, the defender is like sliding out and can't do anything about it, it hits their hand. It's, it's deemed, you know, there's no way they could have seen that. There's no way they could have reacted to it. No penalty given, no foul given. And then that seems to have changed. And I was very confused as to why that was the case or why there had been a sort of shift in the way that rule was being implemented and reviewed. It turns out, I learned this from the match of the day, fellas, that uh, I guess FIFA have requested that leagues be a little bit more uniform in their approach, that they want every league to sort of enforce the VAR rules the same way. Because yeah. lest we forget last year, we had all the conversations about how the uh, Bundesliga referees were going over and looking at the footage, but the Premier League refs weren't, and some leagues were, and some leagues weren't. 
This has been a move to sort of standardize that, which is why we've then gone back to the more punitive version of the handball rule that we see in, say, the Champions League that, like, Lucas Mora had to deal with. Uh, That's, I think, a little bit explains why we suddenly have these more harsh handballs. Because also, and again, this is uh, my my final point for match of the day, ideally, would be that they were looking at last season's penalties. And uh, I guess La Liga and Serie A uh, basically utilized VAR this same way that the Premier League is now utilizing it. Last season, the Premier League had 11 penalties he's given because of handball uh, La Liga Serie A La Liga had 48 Serie A had 57 so mm. it does feel like we're going in that direction so it, it, there is a natural explanation for why we're suddenly getting more handball penalties it's not necessarily natural in the sense that it's ideal it just once you start enforcing it the way the other leagues have those numbers are going to be similar to what we've seen in Spain and Italy yeah exactly and we should make clear that to the rule of the law Eric Dyer committed a foul which is worthy of a penalty. Right. That is what the law states. And what it what it can there's a there's a good thread actually. Dale Johnson of ESPN, if you want to check out, I think he's pinned it on his um on his uh, Twitter. Uh, he's got a good thread explaining how it's all about to according to IFAB, uh, the body who make them rules, <laughs> it's all about the silhouette of the body. And that that relates to how your hand or your arm is in an unnatural position. If you're making your body bigger by extending your arm outwards, you're making your silhouette bigger, and that is when you can give away a foul in the box, i.e. Yeah. with Eric Dyer with his arm out away from his body. There have been six handball penalties in the Premier League this season so far, all of which were a result of the arm being away from the body like Eric Dyer's was. And there's been a couple of examples where the ball has hit the arm, but it's been when the arm is tucked in. I just slapped myself on the yeah. arm. That probably came out on the microphone there. But um, that that's kind of the difference here. So we've had the situation with this. We had the situation with Joel Ward at Crystal Palace basically being punished as well the day before, where it seems very, very unfair. And I know we didn't want to do any hand-wringing, Taylor, but... There was a there was a note in the Guardian's ten things about the weekend piece they do, and I'll, I'll read it out. In a low scoring sport, a penalty, i.e., a very probable goal, should only result from three things: an exceptional piece of skill, an exceptional mistake, or an exceptional stroke of luck. I think this rang home with me because so often, regardless of how these rules are interpreted, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. I think that Andy Carroll header into Eric Dyer's arm, the punishment of having an almost certain goal from the penalty spot does yeah. not fit that crime. I think that's where I, I, it rankles me a little bit. And I read somewhere else, I think it was in the Irish Times, how prior to VAR, soccer was a game of, I think they called it micro handballs. Mm-hmm. Lots of them happening all over the place. And they were either in, uh, you know seen and ignored, or you know exercising a bit of nuance on the referee's part, or you know they, they just happened and nothing, there was no consequence of them. Now we've got VAR showing what really happens on the field. We've had to try and catch up with VAR with the rules, and it's made it all a bit draconian and unfortunate. It has, and it's made it. Uh, Steve Bruce, speaking in the post match interview, said, like, we've lost the plot here. And then was like, <laughs> I think the, the person who was interviewing him then said, like, I've never heard a winning or like a manager who benefited from a penalty complaining about the penalty themselves. And he's like, no, I mean, I'll take it, but <laughs> it, it doesn't really make any sense to me anymore. And I think that's going to be sort of more of the conversation as we progress in this season. I think because of the way it was last year versus the way it is now, and that sudden, in my mind at least, sudden shift is always going to make it seem much more confusing. But then you do have the moments, like we'll talk about Real Madrid later, we'll talk about Man United later, where these Mm. moments of like, wait, so... It's like he's offside, but he's not offside, but it's a foul, but it's not a foul, but it is maybe a handball. Like there's just so many permutations and variations that, again, I I find myself confused. I get a little bit flustered by it, but it's a thing that I think you and I will maybe do our best just to sort of 
break down without getting into hysterical frustration every single week, but just to say, yeah. like, yeah, this is the way they're calling it. Silhouette broken. There we go. So my, uh, to, to go against that, Taylor, my slight concern is that in many ways, top-level soccer is turning into American football, where you see, I think it was last mm-hmm. weekend, the Dolphins had a play where there was an onside kick, and none of them knew they could pick it up. And basically, they <laughs> gave away the ball. So you have a situation oh, where the Miami. players don't know the rules. You have a situation where the commentators don't know the rules. Yeah. And... Soccer should be a very, very simple game. It shouldn't be like that. So I'm a bit worried about technology bringing that kind of thing in, but not worried enough to to, to uh, clutch at my pearls just yet. That's fair. And and, and I, I share that level of concern because for the longest time, I think I've said this many, many times, that for me, VAR ha- has been a, like, you don't have to worry. You're not going to – your team's not going to get cheated out of a goal if there should have been a penalty and wasn't or there shouldn't have been a penalty but was. Like, you can trust that VAR is going to be there to sort of look at it and make sure that things go correctly Mm. but now it has a little bit for me moved into that like all right well let's wait and see if it's actually a goal and 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 routinely i will wait and you can see the players look over and look around as they're celebrating i'm not so concerned about that yet because it still is just sort of a natural byproduct of having to wait and make sure that a thing is confirmed before you celebrate but there are moments like that when I think the commentators are confused, the players are confused. I hope it gets better as we get more familiarity with it. But for right now, I, I, I don't think that's a very good look. And I share your concern that if you have a bunch of people just standing around hands on hips waiting for a review to be finalized, there's a lot of stoppages there. And eventually we're going to have commercial breaks sponsored by VAR, sponsored by Powerade or something. And that's when I'm going to be fully concerned. And they'll be on Peacock. <laughs> And if you have a Samsung TV, you ain't watching it anyway. (laughs) Uh, More Premier League still to be discussed. But first, let's take a moment to talk about today's sponsor, 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. It's time to write a new chapter, one in which you have hair. If you are starting to see it thin, if you are starting to lose it a little bit, you don't need to go the Jose Mourinho route. You don't need to dramatically shave it yourself and then be in a, in a bad mood for the next week or so. You could get a new style. You could go that route. But given that 66% of men start to lose their hair by the age of 35, you can mm-hmm. recognize that you're not the only one who's dealing with this and that there are medical solutions to that issue. There are indeed, and the best uh, time to approach those solutions is when you have hair, rather than when, when you still have some hair, rather than that when it's sense. all gone. Don't you always seem to know, etc., etc. Um, and what uh, were you, you just singing? <laughs> you don't know what you got till it's gone. Oh, <laughs> there we go. All right, I'm going to be silent for a while. Right? Why do guys do weird <laughs> solutions or do nothing when they can turn to medicine and science? And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Nah. Once again, please do not buy any supplements Don't or medicine that. from a gas station. Mm-mm. Just get your gas there. Maybe some chocolate snacky snacks. Prescription <laughs> solutions here backed by science. Hims was created by a guy who knows some men's health conversations are easier mm-hmm. online than in person. No awkward in-person doctor visits nah. or long, long pharmacy lines. For hymns, connects you to licensed medical professionals online, which could save you hours completely <laughs> confidentially and completely discreet. <laughs> Today, Hims is giving you their best offer yet. If you're not happy with your results after 90 days, Hims will give you a full refund. And right now, our listeners can get their first visit absolutely free. Go to forhims.com slash total soccer. That's F O R H I M S dot com slash total soccer. Ryan, the disclaimer is for you, my friend. Full price of pay. <laughs> 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 full and refund. And strike one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Here we go. Full refund of price paid available for first 90 days supply. Refund requests must be made between 90 and 180 days after product shipment delivered. Prescription products require an online consultation with a medical professional who will determine if a prescri- prescription is appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and important safety information. <laughs> Remember, that's forhims.com slash total soccer. Thank you very much to Hims for sponsoring this episode. Thank you very much to Ryan for putting on an accent. Is that an accent or is that just you doing you, but more regally so? I was doing my voice when I was younger on the radio when the local store that sells sofas, sofas, sofas on holiday weekends. That's just the voice they would use. Sofas, sofas, sofas. All right. Uh, well, can you tell that I'm stalling from having to talk about Manchester United? Because that's exactly what I'm doing. Let's talk about their dramatic 3-2 win over Brighton and Hove Albion. Uh, I, we could go straight to the end of the game, but I would sort of like to look at this game as a whole, uh, even mm. if it was not my favorite game to watch this weekend. Ryan, what did you make of this performance, either from Brighton or from Manchester United? Uh, we could talk about either one. Oh, well, let's hit both. Brighton were very good. Yep. Uh, they hit the woodwork five times, as I'm sure you're painfully aware, Taylor. Mm-hmm. And lots of, uh, you know, Trossard was very good in this game. They were, I- I'm confident this Brighton team won't be in trouble after seeing this. This is nope. an impressive performance. And I have to say, one of my friends texted me during this game and said, you know, I thought that it was just you know, Newcastle making Brighton look good last weekend, but they're a really good team. And I was kind of about to text back thinking, no, I think the same thing's happening here. I think it's Manchester United making Brighton look quite good in this. It was certainly in the first half of Manchester United. It was a similar story to we had, uh, to what we had at the Crystal, uh, the Crystal Palace game, you know, giving Brighton a lot of space, not being aggressive at all, being, Sort of mentally not there, quite weak in the one-on-ones. It was just they, it, it's, I'm talking cliches now, but they didn't want it as much. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I do. It was like they just weren't going in for it as much as they, as, as they should be doing, as, as you'd expect a Manchester United team to do. And they were just, re- just very bad defending going on this game, resolutely def- uh, refusing to mark anyone on the back post for Manchester United, which we saw as their downfall at least a couple of times. And one Basaka coming back into this team, maybe, Needs to get back out of this team. Not impressed with him in this performance at all as well. Caught out caught out a couple of times in this game. Not covering the wide man, um, uh, not Brighton's wide man, which I suppose was March and Morpé sometimes as well. He, he had a very poor game. And I thought, um, you know, there was a lot of criticism for Fernandez as well, particularly after the irony of conceding a penalty. Mm-hmm. But he was, I think, the best player on the pitch after all. So he was he was a very positive um a very positive uh, note for Manchester United. But otherwise, I thought this was much of the same that we saw in the defeat last week. And do you think 3-2 to Manchester United was a worthy scoreline for this game? No, absolutely not. Um, I mean, I- I'm not saying that anything necessarily like was wrong, because we'll talk about VAR later on. But I will say that so many of those times the post... Every now and then, like the first two, I think, are sort of like, yeah, it hits the outside of the post. It was maybe never going in, but just tings the bar at the end. The other ones, there's the, I forget who hits the one that goes off the inside of the post, but like nine times out of ten, that is a goal. And yeah. I think you look at the numbers from this game, uh, per, uh, like possession 54 46 Brighton, shots 18 to 7 Brighton, corners 7 to 1, expected goals was 2.59 to 1.69, uh, for Brighton, all in their, all in their favor. And I think it shows you that they were the dominant team. They had more of mm. the ball. They created more chances. They put Manchester United under more pressure. And I think, I agree with sort of most of what you've said. I think you can sum it up sort of this way, that 
when you have a team like Brighton that are clearly well prepared for what they're doing, that Graham Potter has everybody sort of bought in, they know what they're trying to do, and they can adjust to it. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But when there sort of is the preparation, I think that sets you up to have the form. And once you start to feel like I've played in those games when you realize like, oh, we've kind of figured this team out, we're getting more of the ball, we're getting those chances, you start to try stuff, you start to go for those little flicks, you just feel the kind of rhythm of the game, you feel confident in that rhythm, and then you you start to perform. And I think the opposite can happen for a team that isn't feeling it, is feeling like, I don't know when I'm supposed to step. Am I supposed to be tracking that run? Or am I tracking that run? Yeah. And I think that leads to a lot of sort of discombobulation. And I think you then see players being out of sorts and all over the place. And it's why formerly incredibly solid defenders like Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I agree with you, then looks at like a liability at times. And I think a huge part of that was the way Brighton approached this. And a massive part of that was uh, Trossard, who you mentioned previously, yeah. Leandro Trossard, the Belgium international. Actually, I'm actually not sure if he is an international for them, but he very well should be based on this game because <laughs> he seemed so adept at finding those pockets of space, not 60 yards from goal or 50 yards from goal, but 20 yards from goal. He kept mm. popping away from the defense, but finding gaps where the midfield was not for Manchester United, though they're in a 4-2-3-1, similar story to Man City, they get pulled out, like openings sort of pop up, and then he kept finding those opportunities. And I think as Manchester United adjusted to that at halftime, and I think they did, I think there was a more focused effort on tracking him, Matic sticking with him, Fred when he comes on trying to stick with him, then other players just pop up in that same spot. And that's what I mean when I say there's there's preparation and there's patterns of play that if you are the team that has the kind of confidence behind you, you can have that player who's on the ball a bunch rotate out and somebody else then takes that spot and they are yeah. then on the ball. And I think Manchester United just were not prepared for that and to some extent rode their luck and rode some individual moments, the Marcus Rashford goal obviously being one to eventually get three points. But I don't think there's any chance that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is walking away from this thinking, yep, we figured this one out and we got it all right. Yeah, definitely not. And I think um, you mentioned at the top there about a player hitting the inside of the post. I think that was Solly March. And I think if you watch that again, you'll see Juan Bazaka casually jogging back yeah. to goal. No, no, no fire to put out over here. Don't worry about that. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he, he was at fault a, a few times. I think it was particularly for the equalizer as well, where Solly March was completely unmarked at the back. Mm. Uh, I think uh, Fernandez was his closest man yep. at, at that point. And it was it Fernandez's um, you know, ob- ob- obligation to pick him up at that point. I'm not quite sure because it was very unclear what was going on. And you're quite right about how much space um, Brighton found and were given by Manchester United, who were basically the anti-Leicester, I found yeah. this weekend. Leicester being very tight between the lines, not offering Manchester City anything. Man United, it was a bit of a free-for-all. But uh, yeah. I, you, you also mentioned well- that... Cool, I, I would just want to jump in to say, like, I know exactly what you're talking about with that one where it's like Aaron Juan Basaka is there, but then he's not. And uh, Fernandez ends up having to try to make a play, but he is nowhere close enough. And I do think watching a lot of these games, like goals again, Victor Lindelof is heavily involved in a lot of this because he is trying to sort of stay central and track any potential runs or make sure that nobody kind of just comes through directly with the ball but routinely would then move away from the player he was covering. So Sally March at the back post, for example, he was on him and then sort of drifted central and did that vague defender point of like, oh, yeah, you, somebody get him, somebody get him. And like, isn't really paying attention to see if anybody's in a position to get like, to be able to handle that player from a defensive standpoint. And, and I think that was a good reminder to me of how 
bad the communication seems to be or how sort of just not as a unit that defensive line seems to be that routinely they would almost cause more problems for themselves. It was like they were trying to put the fire out with gasoline of like, this should do it. It's a liquid that should (laughs) accomplish the same goal. And then instead it was another goal for Brighton. If we're going to talk about communication or the lack thereof, can I point to the one point which I thought was the best moment in the game, which was unbelievable communication from Manchester United. Really, really good. That goal you mentioned there, uh, Marcus Ah, Rashford's goal for 2-1, where he took all the plaudits there for an amazing finish, putting Ben White on his butt twice uh, and, you know, sending him home, sending him to the shops, etc., etc. Very, very good. But it was all about not only Bruno Fernandes' pass to pick him out, but if you watch it again, watch what he does before he plays the pass. I think it's Manche- uh, I think it's Matic is in the box, plays a short pass to Bruno, who, before he receives the ball, yeah. looks over his shoulder and points. And it yes, looks he like he's indicating to Rashford, you go there now, you go there now. So even before he's got the ball, he's like, I know I'm going to do with this. I'm going to play this pinpoint ball that sets you up. And I thought that was wonderful the way he did that. And basically, he was he was quarterbacking that move. It was superbly done. Yep. I agree entirely. Uh, watching it at the, like, at first, I thought he was saying to Matic, bypass me, play in Rashford. And I was like, that's not a good idea. Like, Rashford's in his own <laughs> half. He has so much distance to cover that. And then, yeah, after you pointed that one out, I went back and watched it again and was like, oh no, he's, he's 100% like, uh, like basically orchestrating everything while, before he even receives the ball. I'm assuming Pep Guardiola would approve, as would yeah. Johan Cruyff and everybody else. It was brilliant. The vision to do that is just uh-huh. superb. It's another level. Absolutely yeah. another level. He was great. I thought Fernandez was the, obviously the best player Manchester United had in this game. But is that saying yeah. much? I don't know. No, it's really not. Because I think the the best performer for them in terms of the most critical performer was probably VAR. Because we do have <laughs> another controversial decision in this one. Anytime you see a penalty in the 90 plus 10th minute, you know something strange has occurred. And in this case, it is a late opportunity for Manchester United. Harry Maguire goes up to meet a chance, heads it into the outstretched arm of Neil Mopé. Uh, nothing given at the time, final whistle goes, and then there's much consternation and frustration on the field, and then we have the confirmation that it is being looked at by VAR, then it's looked at by the referee, then the penalty is given, the penalty taken by Fernandez, and it's a goal. But we have another sort of controversial moment here because the argument would be that last season this probably isn't given as a handball that Mopé doesn't move his arm. He's not trying to obstruct. He's not trying to block it off the line or anything like that. He's just trying to make a a natural play on the ball, yeah. even if that means his hands are in an unnatural position. Yeah, the, I think this comes back again to the silhouette argument and the unnatural yep. position argument and arguably that he was pushing his arm towards the ball. It was absolutely minimal contact, minimal contact but I don't know what you can say about the mm-hmm. intent of it. It's not a sensible decision when you look at it and when you look at how the game was played, but it was right by the yep. letter of the law once again. Mm-hmm. And it made Mopé look very bad for that yep. crying celebration he did when he scored his Penenka penalty at the start of this game yeah. because he was crying for different reasons at the end of this game. <laughs> very unfortunate. And obviously the big part of this, yeah. Taylor, is what the penalty was rewarded after the full-time whistle had been blown, mm-hmm. which baffled a lot of people. But of course, VAR... When it intervenes, it does so in the next break. We saw a similar break in play when I think when uh, for the Tottenham Newcastle penalty as well. It happened, you know, it, it came a little bit afterwards, and it just so happened in this instance that the break in play came after the full time whistle. And there is precedent for this before, by the way. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's kind of precedent for it. Um, April 18, we go to Mainz taking on Freiburg in the Bundesliga. Uh, there was a case where VAR gave a penalty during half time and the players had to come back out to take it. 
I have for a, a similar reason. memory of this now. Yeah, that happened. So it's a similar situation in that the, the break of play happened to be the halftime whistle. They reviewed. Everybody back out. Mm. We've got to take this penalty. So it's the same situation. So that I don't have a problem with. But, you know, once again, it's a punishment not fitting the crime situation for me. Yeah. And certainly because it very much influenced the result. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the laws of the game, the relevant quote would be the review process should be completed as efficiently as possible, but the accuracy of the final decision is more important than speed. For this reason, and because some situations are complex with several reviewable decisions or incidents, there is no maximum time limit for the review process. I think mostly what that means is that you, you can't say like, oh, you have 30 seconds to review this. They're not trying to put you under the under the gun, under a clock or anything like that. But I think the other key point here is just that it's about getting the decision right. Once the referee has made a decision one way or the other, in which case there's no foul, that's when VAR is activated. The referee cannot just extend the game until VAR says, sure, go ahead and, and call that one now, or nope, there was no incident, because at that point they've gone above the allotted time potentially, then they're sort of extending the game for arbitrary reasons yeah so you have to blow the final whistle but as far as i could read there is no law saying like once the final whistle goes the result is confirmed nothing it can ever change that that it feels a little bit like the sort of oh he's showing the underside of his studs it's a red card thing of what we think of as like the common way to explain things and the shorthand for explaining things isn't always what the rules actually say and here yeah. there's nothing about the you know it, unless the final whistle has gone in which case no review can occur the thing that it stresses is there has to be flexibility for when and how you're using VAR and that's what there was here it is just that strange situation i feel a little bit like a narc by being like like they're not wrong and they did get it right based on their own rules so I guess it's correct, but I'm with you that it does feel very much against the run of play. It feels like very against the spirit of the game because it yep. is Manchester United getting bailed out at the end when I do think Brighton probably deserved that point. And again, I'm saying that as a Manchester United fan. So Alex Ferguson would be proud. Fergie time has reached its natural extension of goals being awarded after full time has concluded. I cannot imagine how much he would hate VAR. <laughs> <laughs> I, that had never occurred to me. I think he would. I, I think he might have retired. Like it might yeah. have made him retire if he were Maybe still messaging. So. <laughs> uh, go, going back to sp- speaking about old school things, as an aside, this reminded me of a game I went to uh, a Wimbledon game back in the day, back when Rory Delap was in his early twenties. Yikes! <laughs> um, it was a cup game against either Cardiff or oh, uh, uh, I think it was Cardiff, um, and we it was like ninety second minute, a Wimbledon taking a corner. The corner is taken and the referee blows for full time as soon as the ball is kicked oh, on the corner. The Stupid decision. Yeah. We score and it's the winning goal, but of course doesn't count. Right. And as a result, we have to go to Wales to play a replay just because the referee thought blowing the whistle straight after a corner is taken was the smartest course of action at that point, wasting everybody's time. It's not quite a similar situation, but it, it was the chaos of something happening after the final whistle that reminded me of that. Yeah, but see, and I think that's where people get a little confused, though, is because there is that idea that, yeah, like, if the ball is in the air, if the shot has been taken, but the referee blows the whistle, it's not basketball where, like, the sh- like he got the shot off before the whistle went. Yeah. It's not football, the same thing. <laughs> a beater. It's just, it's done. So I think that's probably where that feeling of, well, the, the whistle went, so it shouldn't matter. And, and this is where, like, I think, like, with Real Madrid later on, we'll talk about it, like, not in depth, but there's almost a, like, weird... F- Physics meets 
I don't know, like many other forms of philosophy because there's like the he's like, is he offside? But he hasn't received the ball when the foul occurs. But is it a foul? Like there are so many nuances to it. It can be very, very confusing. And I guess that's the world we live in when it comes to VAR. Should we talk about a game that didn't really need VAR to be a source of controversy? Uh, I just can see you reaching to get away from Manchester United. So yeah, sure. All right. Uh, But actually, before we do that, let's talk about something happier, something sweeter. Let's say you woke up for a game and your team was garbage. Then that's where today's sponsor, Magic Spoon, can help out. Because if you wake up early, you've got your coffee and it's ready to go. And then your favorite team starts putting you to sleep because they look discombobulated and haven't made the right signings and don't seem like they have a plan uh, on or off the field. Maybe you need just a little bit of a pick me up. And I do think personal experience, Taylor. What? I don't know what you're talking about, Ryan. Uh, (laughs) I didn't at all throw the remote in disgust and walk away for a little while. Uh, (laughs) When you do need a breakfast, maybe that's what the difference is. Maybe your blood sugar's low, you're not quite in the right mindset to watch that team, but you want to eat something healthy and simple, then Magic Spoon is there. Magic Spoon is healthy cereal that Mm. tastes too good to be true. Let me hit you with some numbers. Zero grams of sugar. 11 grams of protein. Everybody loves the proats. And only three net grams of carbs in each serving. Four delicious flavors. Mm. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing. Honestly, it tastes too good to be true. This is, as you say, Taylor, the stuff you had as a kid, but without the guilt. It's all good and millennialable and lovely. (laughs) Millennialable. I just made up a word. It is, you did. It is much healthier for you than, say, Frosted Flakes. Ryan, when you were a child and you wanted Frosted Flakes, did you roll the R to that degree? I did. And also in the UK, they're called called Frosties. Oh, are they really? They are. Because your people only exist with bootleg knockoff candy and cereal names? (laughs) We ate some Frosties and then some Dime Bars for dessert. Ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carbon, GMO-free. So you can go to magicspoon.com slash TSS to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code TSS at checkout to get free shipping. Magicspoon.com slash TSS. Delicious cereal. No guilt. Do it. There we are. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product and that you will not be rueful and sad and feel guilty. It's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. I'll Again, just read the, um, I'll just read the ex- disclaimer here. A 100% happiness guarantee, not, uh, not um, applicable if you're watching Manchester United. <laughs> there we are. Thank you for that. An important and also depressing disclaimer. Thank you very much to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode and to Ryan for just turning that knife in a little bit more. Let's talk (laughs) West Brom, Chelsea, uh, 3-3 finish, 3-0 West Brom, Chelsea pull three back. I love this game and was really confused by it simultaneously. I think you teed this game up as not having any handball controversy, but we very much do at the end, but we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, yeah, this... we do. Of course we do. <laughs> do <you laughs> There's know no games that don't have handball controversy. <laughs> exactly. They're all oh, present. Man. I'll be present. Uh, do you want to know a fun fact? <laughs> this is the... <laughs> I'm sorry. Have some magic spoon. Cheer yourself I up. I, I have like a paragraph of notes on that handball. Great. Here we go. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. This was, by the way, fun fact, the first draw in the Premier League this season. Was it Really? Yeah, I missed that. That is outstanding. That's bonkers, isn't it? It really is. All right. I guess VAR has weighed in on that one as well. Yeah. There will be no goalless draws anymore. You know what was crazier? This was Thiago Silva's first game and he was captain. 
Well, I mean, you know, anytime you can give somebody the captain's armband before they've played a game for you, you have to do it. You want them to feel settled. Credit to Daryl Grove for predicting that Tiago Silva would. I think, I cannot remember if it was exactly this scenario, but as I recall, it was essentially would struggle with the pace and physicality of the Premier League early on because he was at an advanced age, had not had the preseason, and maybe wouldn't be quite ready for it. And I think this was a very good reminder that Daryl Grove knows things. Yeah, I think so. We all know that Daryl Grove knows things. But also, I'm not going to put too much uh, mean-spiritedness on Thiago Silva okay. for slipping on the ball, Steven Gerrard style, uh, because that could happen to anyone. Maybe shouldn't happen to sort of a professional of his caliber, mm-hmm. but it did happen to him. But you're quite right there. The pace uh, and the physicality did catch up with him. Particularly, I think that Chelsea have found here um, that having two centre-backs in Christensen and Silva who play at their pace that they play... It's not quite the pace that was required for the high line that Frank oh, no? Lampard requires. No, I think it's a similar issue to what Barcelona have had in recent months as well. Yeah. Uh, in that, you know, the slower, slower centre-backs letting them down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, basically, I'm not entirely convinced by Frank Lampard in this game. It seems like the, certainly the first half was the uh, same old story from last season of giving away very easy goals from bad, bad mistakes. I agree about the first half. I thought that he got some things wrong in this one. I actually agree with you. I don't know if you were really saying that Thiago Silva shouldn't have been captain, but I, I never get too sucked into those arguments about like, oh, he's wearing the armband. Oh, he took the armband off of him. But I do think that it, it establishes a feeling of like, nope, you've earned this as opposed to you've actually earned this. But yeah. I do think there were probably other major issues given that, as he said, after either at halftime or at the end of the game, like the three goals were basically three individual mistakes that lead directly to goals. And it's true. Yeah. It's a really bad game away from Marcos Alonso. It's a very lazy header that's intercepted. Uh, Christensen has a strange approach to this one, but again, I think it's because he doesn't have the familiarity with Thiago Silva. I think he's caught in an uncertain situation. But then we have the giveaway from Thiago Silva for the second goal, and then for the third, there's just a complete lack of marking at the back post. I will say it did set us up for commentator redemption, because after the second goal, I forget who the commentator was, but he dropped, uh, all that glitters is not Silva, and I physically cringed on that one exactly but then uh when chelsea conceded the third goal by completely not marking at the back post his line then was chelsea are taking social distancing to a level that's not appropriate which i thought was what was better it was better than the all that glitters is not silver so you're saying there's a silver lining for the commentator there we go see that's why you're the professional ryan that's why you're (laughs) a professional uh so do you think it was just individual mistakes and chelsea just looking a little bit out of it or did you see other things in that first half that made you think frank lampard got some things wrong I think it was a combination of both okay. I think saying for that first goal for example there were sort of five players sitting off Robinson giving him all the space he wanted as he lined up to shoot there Reese James certainly step up, stepped off him as well um it, yeah very very much a combination and just a, a bit of a weak mentality from Chelsea but that was very very much reversed in the second half because if we are to give Chelsea credit they had 75% possession in this game and they fought for it mm-hmm. they fought really hard in their second half they showed the kind of mentality that is required to uh, get three goals against a near relegation cert on, on, on an away trip. <laughs> I, this is the standard. This, is this the is this the line we're placing Chelsea at now? I don't know. 
I, I see your point. I see what you're getting at here. Um, yeah, I mean, and this is, it is not helped by how shambles West Brom have looked so far this season that then this is where they pick up their first point. This is where Chelsea drop, uh, drop points. So, or drop more points, I should say. So I, I, I see what you mean. I do take like solace, not even as a Chelsea fan, but I think if you are a Chelsea fan, I think there are moments in here that you can feel like, okay, he's not, he is the one in charge. He does sort of back himself to figure it out because, I'd say a double substitution at halftime, lest we forget we only have the three. We're not still with the five subs, but uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi comes on, Cesar Spilicueta comes on, Marcus Alonso and Kovacic go off. Yeah. And I think right there, it shows you the sort of like, Marcus Alonso is not working. I want to put on a, a more solid all-round defender, and I want somebody to come on who's going to control the tempo a little bit better, be better on the ball, go at people, but keep the ball moving, play a little bit faster. And I thought I thought Hudson-Odoi did that phenomenally. Then he makes the big change, take, brings on Olivier Giroud, takes off Thiago Silva, changes <laughs> up the approach a little bit, and we see, I think, the dividend there because both... Uh, I, or Olivier Giroud, I believe, is the one to keep the ball alive when it goes long off of a set piece that then recycles back and then you get the cross in for the equalizing goal there at the very, very end. So I thought uh, Lampard did a very good job of managing that second half. And then afterwards, the reports came out that he did a yelly job of managing the locker room, uh, was not <laughs> pleased with Marcus Alonso, not his performance. But according to reports, he... Uh, after being subbed out, took a shower and then watched the rest of the game on the team bus. Did not rejoin the team to watch the game in the stands. Lampard took issue with that. I think there have already been issues with Marcus Alonso, so I don't know if we will see him anytime soon. We did not see Kepa in this game. Caballero Ooh. starts. Uh, Kepa, I think, maybe should ready himself for a sustained period on the sidelines unless a move takes place. So I think a lot of sort of chaos and drama for this team in these 90 minutes and that they're able to pull a point back is commendable, especially since they were 3-0 down. But as you pointed earlier, Ryan, it also doesn't really happen without some controversy at the very end. Yeah, very much so. And just before we get to that, I agree with most of your points there. And I think that Hudson-Odoi particularly was a game changer mm-hmm. there coming on at halftime. All of his substitutes, let's give Frank Lampard credit yeah. there. They all were very effective. But having a, a winger on the wing really seemed to be revolutionary <laughs> for them. <laughs> Congratulations to uh, Chelsea for doing that. Um, can I have my weekly go at Timo Werner as well? You sure? Who I you thought sure can. was sure once can. again, I, I sort of claimed that he was ineffective last week. Mm-hmm. And in this one... Maybe I'm just looking for the negatives now, but I saw him robbed of the ball a few times. I saw a few poor long shots. I think he had a, in injury time, he had a shot that went over the bar and some, it's, you know, in orbit somewhere now. Uh, so I, I, once again, not entirely yeah. impressed with him. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's get to that. that well, um, I would say, I would say, I, I, I know what you mean because I was watching this one with him a little bit more in mind. Same for Kai Havertz as well. And I did see the things you're talking about. My, like, where I am with him right now is that it felt like there were moments when those two were just trying to make something happen. Kai Havertz has the shot in the second half where he sort of turns, goes at a defender and shoots from like 25, 30 yards out. A shot that gets a lot of power behind it, don't get me wrong, but never feels that threatening. But I think that was both of them being used to situations in which everybody is looking at them to make something happen. Uh, Havertz at Leverkusen, Werner at RB Leipzig. And there was an element of the, of their game or of that in their game this weekend in my mind. And I do think that maybe if we get more reps for them, if they get a little bit more comfort and familiarity with the system and with their teammates, that there's more combination and less sort of 
wasteful shooting or wasteful take on. So I know what you mean. I think I'm just willing to explain it away a little bit more. And guess who was doing absolutely nothing in the box when Tammy Abraham scored the equalizer? It was Timo Werner. That's what I figured it was going to be. <laughs> yes, Tammy Abraham was, though. He was scoring the equalizer and definitely not using his hand at all and don't even ask questions about it. Yeah, so there's uh, the situation that came up in this game. Another handball controversy with uh, uh, Kai Havertz, uh, the ball hitting his hand as the ball came in. But then the ball was kind of recycled out of the box. I don't know if you've got the exact notes on who it, who it went to where, but it came out of the box and came in again when Tammy fumbled it in. But basically the controversy here being, why was that not a handball? Because it was very clearly outside of the silhouette. It was in the box. This is a, 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 a it would have been a foul last season, but not now situation. Right. Uh, you know, but there was a pass, a shot and a goalkeeper parry before the ball between the handball and the goal. So it wasn't as direct. It wasn't a directly involved in play handball. But for me, that's still very much a handball in the box. So I'm not particularly happy about that rule once again. And I'll read out from the Premier League website for you, Teddy, because I know you love me reading out from the Premier League website from the rule book. Especially when it's read fancily. You have to read it fancily. (laughs) If an attacking player accidentally touches the ball with their hand or arm and then scores a goal, or the ball goes to another attacking player and they immediately score, this is a handball offence. Mm-hmm. But if it's not a handball, it's not a handball offence. If after an accidental handball, the ball travels some distance via a pass or a dribble, or there are several passes before the goal scoring, before the goal or goal scoring opportunity. The phrase some distance is doing all the work there. Because as I say, there was a pass, a shot and a parry between the handball and the goal. So I'm, I'm not very happy with this rule, frankly. I think it's even arguably even more outrageous than the dire incident because uh, it's just flagrant favoring of attacking players over defensive players when you know it still led to the same result a goal uh until my wife was in law school i never fully understood why so many lawyers take philosophy classes now i get it because you've got to be able to like argue philosophical ideas essentially i like that we're getting that way with the premier league and with uh var that eventually all referees will have to have a legal background and a philosophy background to be able to (laughs) like extrapolate whole theories about some distance and phrases like that yeah, some distance, and yeah, there's there's a few phrases doing a lot of hard work in that Premier League uh, website uh, uh, rule book. But no, I don't know. What do you? How did you feel about it? Did you feel good about that? I didn't feel good about that. I think, like my honest, as honest as I can be with that, is that it, it, it's moments like that just make me feel sort of bored. Like I'm just sort of like, oh, of course, like of course that's what it's going to be. And it's, I think it's frustration because knowing that I can't like impact any sort of change in that it just is a thing where like i don't really like it it feels odd it doesn't feel like it's in keeping with the spirit of the game a phrase that i am loath to use but does sort of <laughs> convey how i'm feeling in the moment but it just sort of also is what it is another frustrating turn of phrase but i think again applies here that like i don't love it i don't like the result if that were manchester united finding a way to equalize even if i'm a fan i'm still gonna be like Ugh. Like, I mean, it was, it, it was them needing VAR, needing a sort of strange moment to get that result. And it still was a like, oh, that's, that's a bummer, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> like that's, you never want to be finishing a game and apologizing is I guess what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, but yeah, I don't think justice was done here. This is, this is three po- two points robbed mm-hmm. from West Brom who are going to need all the points they can get come the end of the season. They did have some good performance in this game. I thought Pereira looked good once again. There was a moment where he did an absolutely outrageous back flick pass, uh, yeah. forward. I think to Robinson, I think it was, but it was incredible stuff. So he looked great. And a few other players uh, covered themselves in glory pretty well, I thought. And maybe they'll finish as high as 18th. I'm not sure. 
<laughs> Maybe indeed. Uh, much Premier League has been discussed. Let's talk about a Bundesliga game or two for a moment. Let's talk Augsburg, Borussia Dortmund. 2-0 to Augsburg, a result that I was uh, not necessarily expecting. This was another game that I did not watch live. Rewatched the whole thing again. First of all, loved having Steve Chirondolo as the color commentator. Uh, very much enjoyed what he brought. Did a lot of analysis and a lot of like, oh, no, when you're playing this type of team, you've got to do this. I felt like, oh, you know, he's experienced this. He knows what he's doing. So that was yeah. really, really nice. But it was a game where, again, knowing the result... I expected it to be worse. And then, but then it's a strange game where it like creeps up on you of like, oh, it's the 30th minute and they still haven't created. Oh, it's the 40th minute and they still haven't done anything. Oh, I see how this game is going to go. I understand why Augsburg end up getting the result because I wouldn't say that like, uh, this wasn't the Leicester thing of Augsburg just completely blitzed Dortmund and sort of wet at them and caused massive problems. I think it was Dortmund not really getting up to speed in time to be able to deal with Augsburg sort of. Focusing on set pieces, focusing on counterattacks, and to some extent it was just Dortmund being a little bit too slow on the day. That's my takeaway, Ryan. What did you think of this game? Yeah, I think uh, we can just attribute this to a bad day. There's a lot of people online saying, you know, Favre out, this is enough of Favre, and I'm thinking... That was a quite convincing win last week, and you know we know this mm-hmm. team can be electric and excellent when they're uh, when they're on the, uh, when they're on one. But they came up against a very very disciplined Augsburg side. We know they're kind of these perennial mid table finishers, but they can pull it out the bag like this. They're usually predicted for like bottom half finishes, but. I think they're top right now, which is hilarious. Wow. Um, but they put in a very entertaining show, like that quite neutral shape they have in that sort of Ralph Randick style. I thought was very good. And, uh, old Caliguri getting a, getting a, mm-hmm. a goal here. Um, he does love to score against Borussia Dortmund, the former Schalke man. This was his 300th game as well. And he set up the other goal as well. So bully for him. And bully for Augsburg for getting a 2-0 win against Dortmund with 20% possession. Did not know that number, but cannot say I'm surprised by it because it was a lot of uh, Atletico Madrid style sitting in a 4-4-2 and being very defensive. It was oftentimes a 4-5-1 and being defensive. It was every single outfield player within 30 to 35 yards of their own goal defensive. But then they took their chances. As I said, they get a a goal off of a set piece. Uh, I think Akanji does a very poor job of even trying uh, to mark uh, who scores the opener. Uh, Urakai. Urakai with the ball in from uh, Kalajuri, as you said. But yeah, um, like never gets goal side, never really causes any problems. I think maybe thinks Roman Berkey is going to come for it because it's in the, inside the six-yard box, but he does not. The second goal it is, in my mind, very much just Jaden Sancho giving the ball away in a very silly way, that he tries to keep it in bounds and I think is looking for a central midfielder, but plays it directly to an Augsburg player who's able to bring it down, hold it up, and then it's just a quick ball in, and then mm. there's a goal. And I think it's not just that it's a bad ball from Jaden Sancho, it's that everybody else is expecting, okay, now we've got possession, so we're going to move forward. Thomas Mounier, for example, as the right wing back, goes all the way to the right touchline once Dortmund get the ball back because he thinks, like, I've got to spread the field, I've got to make sure the options are open. But as he is drifting wide is when Jaden Sancho turns the ball over. And now Thomas Mounier has effectively taken himself out of the play by 20 yards. He is on it immediately. He is fully sprinting back as soon as this turnover happens. But he's just so at like so far away from his mark that by the time he's even in some level of position, the ball's already in the back of the net. So I don't really fault anybody but Jaden Sancho for trying something a little bit risky there and it not coming off. But this is sort of the margins. And it's, again, what a team that is really well organized can do to hurt you. 
Definitely. And I think you, you pick up, picked up on something there with the wide players, Meunier and Guerrero on the other mm. side. Uh, they were just forced by Augsburg's narrow shape to just bang in crosses. Uh, there were 38 crosses in this game from Borussia Dortmund, mm. which is not quite Man United-Fulham when, what was that David Moyes game when there were like 80-something crosses? Yeah, something of, like that, yeah. Not there's quite that, as there's a hard one as well, I think. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun time. <laughs> it's, been a great, it's been a great couple of years. Sorry to keep bringing up Manchester United's uh, misgivings, but uh, mm. uh, it wasn't quite as drearier performance as that, but it does seem that when sort of these kind of level teams who press a lot uh, when they run out of ideas, they bang in crosses. We see it with yeah. Man City time and time again. We've seen it with several other teams. And this was this is Bruce Dortmund's turn to do this. It's just a case of, as I said at the top, the, the kids not turning up. They were quite anonymous, <laughs> weren't they? Those middle attacking players in this game. They really were. Uh, Niederlechner, who is not a player I had much familiar with, as evidenced by my pronunciation, is a player that I thought was pretty impressive and is one who I won't be surprised if we hear, like a, a year from now, has made a move to a Premier League team that needs a sort of target hold-up player because he he is the one who brings that ball down from Jaden Sancho, the inadvertent pass. But to hold off Axel Witzel and turn and then play the ball forward into the path of Caligiri all at once feels like exactly what you want out of a target man and a physical one at that. So well done to him. Good finishing from, from Caligiri. Less so good finishing from Bruzia Dortmund and less overall play from Bruzia Dortmund, who I think were just a little too slow. Didn't want to sort of play into Augsburg's hands of getting caught on the break, committing too many numbers forward and getting caught out that way. Yeah. But I think then aired on the opposite side of not trying enough, not trying to be risky enough with the ball so you don't end up creating really anything. And here's me thinking when this game concluded, oh, the Bundesliga yep. title was over for another season, but oh no, Bayern Munich had other plans, maybe. They did indeed. We're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about today's sponsor, Artifact. We have talked about many uh, Artifact many times on the show, but we're going to talk about them again. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to capture stories about the important people or things in your life. You can basically think about it like your favorite podcast, but about whatever you want. We're talking to some different people about like ideas for artifacts or things you could utilize it for. One thing would be as depressing as it sounds, like you could use it to sort of preserve the moment that we live in of, of the COVID pandemic era, of the uncertainty of things and kind of the fear there, because I do think it will be a hard thing to explain to future generations. Again, I know this has been a fun, uplifting episode, but I think it'll be a hard <laughs> thing for kids who are like infants now to remember the time when it was like wh why is everybody still sort of weird about hugging <laughs> like i don't quite get this like i feel like it could be a good way to sort of let people in the future understand what we are experiencing emotionally today yeah so when you're when you're grown-up children are elbowing at, at job interviews yeah. they know why they're doing it and one of the <laughs> exactly. uh, one of the ways in which you can use artifacts it says here uh taylor is that you can use them to in you can use to interview your parents about mm -hmm. what their lives were like before you were born i can actually reveal that one for you it was great before you were born for them uh, they they could stay out late and they could go wherever they wanted they didn't have to get a sitter it was wonderful there you go that one's done they didn't yet have that twitch <laughs> they knew what sleeping was like in the mornings it was wonderful uh but it sincerely you could use it to find out more about your parents lives like mm -hmm. you know uh, there's there's lots of things i would like to have known about my grandparents who were in the wars for example yep. that would have been a wonderful uh, use of this and uh you can use it for as, as, as a gift for your significant other maybe they want Those to know about fun. what their yeah. grandparents were doing and i think it's a really really good way of documenting things 
Praise be to these guys. <laughs> um, if you want to hear some examples, you can listen to the uh, or- TSS origin story, such as it is. It's less dramatic than like a Marvel uh, origin story movie, but heyartifact.com slash TSS. If you want to hear about Daryl's cancer diagnosis and treatment, you can go to heyartifact.com slash Daryl. Or if you want to uh, commission one of your own, you could just go to heyartifact.com. Be sure to use the code TSS at checkout to get $40 off. Once again, heyartifact.com. Use the code TSS to get $40 off. Thank you very much to Artifacts for sponsoring this episode. Thank you very much to, as Ryan said, Bayern Munich for dropping points in an emphatic way so that we did not yet have the... We already had like a lot of VAR narratives. I didn't need the, is the Bundesliga already over narrative? And we don't get it because Bayern lose. I was surprised. Ryan, what did you make of this one? Yeah, they lose courtesy of uh, everybody or one of the most favorite Bundesliga teams who break the 50 plus one rule with reckless abandon. Hoffenheim! Yeah! Who had um, 6,000 fans in this stadium, by the way. And when you're listening back, they still are pumping the artificial crowd noise in. Yes, they are. I mean, where's the point where you don't need it anymore? Because 6,000 fans, I would argue, could still make some noise. See, they could. I I actually thought about this, too. I would feel pressure if I were a fan. Because I think if you're in a stadium with, you know, 60,000 people... I don't feel that need to like be screaming my lungs off constantly, but I think if there's only 6,000 of you in that, in that environment, you do feel a little bit more pressure to be loud, to sort of overcompensate. And to some extent, maybe this is just me being lazy. I feel like there are true hardcore diehard fans out there who officially do not like me right now. But I think like, to, so to some extent, to just be able to be like, all right, I don't have to scream my head off for 90 minutes to try to overcompensate for the other, you know, 40,000 people who aren't here. I would kind of appreciate that, though I do take your point that it is a little bit odd to get competing soundtracks. Yeah, I think so. But more more to uh, matters on the field. Hoffenheim, for the most part in this game, looked pretty dominant. And they did so, uh, I sort of hinted at this early on, they were very, very direct. Two of mm-hmm. their goals were classic route one coming from the goalkeeper. I think the second and the fourth goal that was. Uh, and the, the other thing I will, I will note about this game is that the role of Aaron Wambazaka was played by Benjamin Pavar. in that <laughs> <laughs> they got overloaded time and time again it was yeah. three versus four quite a lot uh, when when Hoffenheim were going forward or four versus three I should say uh, the Bayern defense sort of had no width because um, Pavar was caught out of position time and time again and Kramaric to his credit was exploiting that to the max and you can make excuses for uh, for for uh, Bayern Munich here you know they had a super cup where they went to extra time midweek they're playing a, a high line and they don't have a lot of depth in their squad so it's going to take a toll on them but you know we're not that far into the season it's not the Mm -hmm. time for those kind of tiredness excuses so I'd be a little bit worried uh, if I were buying about this because they absolutely got caught out and as I say I think it was Hoffenheim just finding the formula they were going really direct they were putting runners in behind the back line and it worked to perfection I I will it did I don't take issue with anything you said I will just sort of also own the fact that I just accept that Bayern Munich are Bayern Munich and they're this relentless machine. If you want to hear how it is that they've gone about making that happen, Manuel Vates and I did a Soccer 101 episode about why Bayern Munich are so good and have been for so long. It's a 40-minute episode, so I will not get into it here. But I will say that like, I already feel like this game is going to be one of those... Like the five most important games from Bayern Munich season and like an yeah. early loss to Hoffenheim reminded them that they have to fight. And from that, they responded with a physical game against Blank where they won 3-0. Because I, I, I did see them. them. Yeah. I can write that script. They'll lose a few games before Christmas, then they'll win every single one afterwards and win the league. That's how they do. That checks out. That checks out. Yeah. And that is another thing Manuel guaranteed was that you'll see Bayern have that downturn in form. The question is, can other teams have the 
efficiency and ruth- ruthlessness to capitalize on that downturn. Uh, it seems like right now we know the answer in that Borussia Dortmund drop points as well. But Bayern here, I think like you saw them, I think to your point, look tired, not look as physically up for that and uh, up for this one. And so then you do see the moments like I think it's the fourth, no, the third goal for Hoffenheim is uh, Alfonso Davies losing a header to Kutterbach. And then it's and it's basically then flicks on to Dabur and you just kind of yeah. have them immediately out of position because of a long ball and uh, losing an aerial challenge, which I cannot imagine is a thing that Hansi Flick drew up or expected, that one long ball would be their their sort of undoing. So I think you could see Byron looking a little bit tired, to your point, looking a little at not as up for the physicality of this one. Thomas Muller has the incident where his jersey maybe gets pulled, and he yeah. reacts to that as though he's been shot. And like, how could you not? It like yells at the the his opponent for it. And it had an element of like, uh, how dare you? Like, you can't, you can't rough us up. You can't touch us. That's not allowed. And I think you have these games every season with Bayern where they don't look up for it. They look a little complacent. They've just won 400 straight games. So they have a downturn in form and then they come right back and respond. I think I'm with you though that if we see them losing physical challenges, looking a little bit leggy, a little, a little lack of positional discipline, then I will share your concern that maybe they need to tighten things up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, to, to back up your point, there there was a lot of route one, and it just seemed like they got out muscled, and yeah. uh, they 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 lost a lot of balls they should have won, as you mentioned with uh, the Davies losing that header. Mm-hmm. And on the first goal, the corner um, is it Bikicic? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Bizakic. Bizakic. I, lo- I looked much. this up. How to do this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he he sort of got that. Uh, glanced header, mm-hmm. uh, but he was not one of the shortest in the box. Yep. at that point, and he, and he won the on his back. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah. So that's yeah. not the sort of thing you'd expect Bayern Munich to give up on a set piece, certainly. No, and then I think even for the fourth goal, uh, it's a great. Sort of, I would say a little bit fortunate, but mostly great run by Bebu, who loses his footing and then gets up at the exact right moment to cut on, on David Alaba and then closes that gap and cuts around Manuel Neuer and draws the penalty. So great work mm-hmm. by him. But it is also right before that, Kramaric is on the ball, is sort of dancing, and Jerome Boateng just c- comes through and wrecks him, gets a yellow for it. But also that's your center back who's now run 15 yards forward to try to make a play. Obviously, they're chasing the game and a little bit desperate, but that is a reckless tackle that then takes him out of the play and opens up space for the opponent. And I think is maybe a sign of the frustration and emotion of the moment overriding Byron's sort of ruthless efficiency. Uh, not to go with the stereotypes, but I think you know what I mean. That like, yeah. there's the mo- like when Byron are losing and there's an element of, okay, it's fine. We know how to figure this out. We'll just play our game, slow it down. Like you'd be 10% better. You'd be 1% faster and they get a result. This felt like I'm mad. I want to kick somebody. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter if we can see the goal. It felt like emotion trumping reason, which is definitely not a thing Hansi Flick wants to see. Definitely not, and he probably didn't want to see uh, that that fourth penalty, that fourth goal of the penalty being given away. Uh, Manuel Neuer had to do it and had to get the yellow yeah. card in that point. And, you know, it was pretty close to being a red card, I suppose, mm-hmm. in theory. But the big shame there was that Babu didn't score because that yeah. was a wonderful move. You say he beat you know, Joshua Kimmich and uh, put David Alaba down as well on, on on route to goal. If he'd have finished that off, that would have been proper highlight real stuff. It would have been a really good move. So it's a shame that that wasn't completed. But uh, I don't think Hoffenheim would be too upset <laughs> with the uh, end result. If he finished that off, is it better than Marcus Rashford's goal? Because I think Marcus Rashford's goal is one of the goals of the weekend. But if Bebu finishes, I think he might get top spot. If Bruno Fernandes like, somehow shouted at him from England to tell him to move, do, make that move, <laughs> then yes, it was as good. <laughs> All right, uh, let's talk Spain very briefly. Atletico Madrid with a 
An emphatic, I would say, 6-1 win over Granada. Luis Suarez hits the ground running. Barcelona fans not thrilled about that, but probably are thrilled about their 4-0 win over Villarreal. But Ryan, we're going to spend our remaining minutes of this episode talking about Real Betis 2, Real Madrid 3. It's kind of wild that so much happened this weekend that we're, not, we're just glancing over Atletico Madrid scoring six goals. With yeah. Suarez getting the goals as well. That's a crazy... There's only so much time. <laughs> I know, but that's a, that's a, yeah, a turn up for the book, shall we say. Yeah. And as was this game, which once uh, Real Madrid being one of several teams who sort of sneaked a win in the dying embers of the game. Well, I suppose yeah. it was the 82nd minute when the penalty came, but it looked like Even they weren't so. going to get a result in this game. It was Real Madrid's first win of the season. Uh, what can we take away from this? that uh, Real Madrid aren't perfect but Karim Benzema is he still deserves to be kept in this team he still keeps getting picked some people think he shouldn't be but Real Madrid aren't scoring goals without him I think he's no. wonderful he's still, he's still having such an impact after over a decade at Real Madrid a club that doesn't keep people on the books that long generally speaking unless your name's Karim Benzema or Sergio Ramos very yeah. good yeah Sergio Ramos especially but yeah for this goal like I have two things to say about it. It's a fine finish from Federico Valverde. It is Karim Benzema creating it and getting the assist. Mm. Uh, Ray Hudson, doing the commentary as he is wont to do, does his sort of hyperbolic approach to it of like turning and twisting and finding a way and like an, like an alligator with an itch or a crocodile with an itch or something like that. <laughs> and I get what he's getting at, but it is also Karim Benzema. It's not as though he's pulling off a bunch of skill moves and just shredding people. Like it is a series of fortunate bounces that keep him like on top of the ball. He tries to do a step over the defender kind of pokes it into him and then it bounces off his foot and then he, he maintains possession and then he tries tries to move and it goes off and he kind of he keeps the ball and so it's not that he is this like silky attacker who gets around players but what it is is that he is an old head who's confident and Mm. will try stuff and that is what I think really makes him so important to Zinedine Zidane and this Real Madrid team is that you need that person who isn't I contrast it with what I was saying about Kai Havertz and Timo Werner earlier that he's not just trying to force something because I got to make something happen everybody's looking at me like, yes, his pass, like, this sequence was a little bit awkward and a little bit improvised, more so than him planning it all out in detail. But it's still him using his ability and using his reputation a little bit to, I think, pull out defenders, make of it what he can, take people on, and in the end create something, which in the end is a goal. So I'm with you that I thought this was, even if it's not, like, technically precise, it was an incredibly important reminder of just what Karim Benzema is for that team. Definitely so. And an important reminder here that Real Madrid do have their defensive liabilities here. Also with the first goal, particularly <laughs> that uh, Monday Heady coming in uh, from the, from the Canales cross, yeah. where uh, I think it was Monday absolutely towered above Rafael Varane to get the header on. So that was another situation of defenders not doing what you think they would do at this elite level. And uh, with William Carvalho's goal, the second goal, a really good, proper hard strike on goal. But could Thibaut Quarter have done more to get a hold on that? Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe so. But I think he just wanted to set the stage for the, for the the eventual comeback. We have the Emerson own goal. We have the Ramos penalty. As you said, a little bit controversial there. How much do we want to get into that penalty? <sighs> Go on then. 
I'm, I'm literally asking you because I'm okay <laughs> with, with not going as far. We've so, talked a lot about fortunate decisions and, and strange moments. So if this is another one of those, like, yeah, I guess it is, but it's weird. I think, I'm okay with it just being okay but weird. I think it's okay but weird is a good description. Mm. This was where Myron was denied a shot by a player falling in his path, yeah. basically, yeah. which was Bartru fell in his path. And it's one of those unfortunate ones where the intent is not necessarily there, but yes, he did prevent a shot being taken mm. and that's preventing a goal scoring opportunity so i can handle that yeah and i can also handle the fact that they gave us a sodio ramos panenka mm-hmm. <laughs> is that why you can handle it because you wanted a sergio ramos panenka i like sergio ramos panenkas i do that's i fair. like it when he when he puts them in they're, they're almost as good as more paper nankas but with less crying celebrations <laughs> Um, I, this was the goal that I was referencing earlier, the moment I was referencing earlier, where they're reviewing, is it a penalty, is there a foul, but then also, is there offside? And if there is offside, if you don't call it for being offside before the foul occurs, was the player offside? And that's where we get into philosophy and, and these, these types of issues. I believe I am correct in saying that the rule book says you can be offside, get fouled, and the penalty then is called, even if you were in an offside position, because the foul has occurred before the uh, flag goes up, the play is ruled dead. And again, that's what it's all about is, is the play officially dead? And then I guess, was there a clear and obvious error in here? They deem the player to be onside, but they also deem it to be a foul. I don't really have an issue with it, even if it is harsh by like any other standard. If this is amateur soccer, I think everybody's screaming and really mad about it with VAR. I think that's the way they're calling it. And as we've talked about it, they're going for the unified approach and the unified approach says that is a foul. No arguments there. (laughs) There we are. So on that note, we've talked a lot of VAR. We've talked a little bit about Europe, a lot bit about the Premier League. Ryan, anything else you want to talk about from this weekend? I think you've done a damn fine job and I've ridden your tail, your coattails once again. Couldn't even say coattails. That's how bad I've been today. You're welcome. (laughs) I think you've been splendiferous, my friend. But Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for taking all the time to break down all of the action that we could talk about from this past weekend. Always a pleasure. Never a chore. 